Santa Claus. She has the faith to believe when all of the stodgy, unimaginative, realistic grown-ups who've been uh, too tainted by adulthood to really believe. In, um, in Harvey, Jimmy Stewart believes in a six-foot talking rabbit. In uh, Peter Pan, if you believe hard enough, if you've got the faith, you can fly. People, I'm sorry to tell you, it doesn't matter how much you believe, you cannot fly. And parents, you may want to hold your hands over your children's ears at this moment, but there is no Santa Claus. And there are no six-foot talking bunnies. I mean, I know that sounds like a stodgy, unimaginative fuddy-duddy, but it's true. It's reality. Uh, Hendricks tells a story about a little boy that was asked to define faith. He defined it something, or excuse me, believing something you know ain't true. (laughs) And that's how we define faith. The measure of faith seems to be the... um, just how ridiculous the thing you believe in is. The, the more absurd, the stronger and more beautiful the faith. But that's not faith. At least not what the Bible is talking about when it uses that word. That, that is uh, pure sentimentality. Closing our eyes to reality and believing something we know in our hearts just isn't true. But we want it to be true or, or it's so beautiful it should be true. Now, this type of thinking has led in our day to the idea that if you believe in the right way, if you have the right kind of faith, you can make things real. You can create your own reality. But it's not true. It isn't so. It's not true in the physical aspects of our world. And it's not true in the spiritual aspects of our world. If this was true, if faith meant believing lies, then any rational person would be obligated to reject the whole concept of faith. And in fact, I, I'm afraid that there are a lot of people who've abandoned the idea of true religion just for this very reason, because they cannot conceive that religion and truth can go together, that there can be something true on a spiritual level. Well, fortunately, we are not left to this confusion. Our writer in Hebrews 11 gives us the definition that he is using of faith. Turn there with me. Hebrews 11. While you're turning there, let me uh, say a couple things about the end of chapter 10. Chapter 10, our writer started telling us some very important things about life. He started talking about faith. He said, uh, he quoted God from Habakkuk 2.4, My righteous one shall live by faith. That faith is essential to life. We cannot live spiritually without faith. And he he, uh, elaborates on that, clarifies that, verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving or the saving of the soul. You see, to shrink back means to consider the things that God has said as unreliable. And so allow our lifestyles to deteriorate into, into one of functional disbelief where we may say, I still believe in God, but it doesn't affect what I say and what I do, how I live. But the faith that preserves the soul, faith can keep us from destroying ourselves on the inside, destroying ourselves spiritually, destroying ourselves morally and emotionally, relationally. See, that's the value of faith. It can keep us alive on the inside. 
So we see that faith is extremely important to life. But what is it? I mean, what is this faith that uh, is so essential to life that can preserve our souls? Well, fortunately, our uh, writer tells us. He does this by first giving a very simple definition and then piling on a whole bunch of illustrations to to show exactly and specifically what uh, the definition means. This is not a, a philosophical treatise on faith. The, the definition is very simple, but rather his purpose is to show uh, empirically what in the lives of, of people in the Old Testament qualified as this kind of faith. And, and by looking at these examples, then we can see what he, just exactly what he's talking about by using the term faith. We're going to get a good start on chapter 11. David is going to have to clean up next week when he gets here, finish the chapter, because there's no way we can get through it. But we'll get a running start. Well, first, just the definition. Verse 1 of chapter 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. To get us started, I want to explain the meaning of some of these words that are used here. Um, the Greek word used for faith here is pistos. It means faith or belief or trust. See, I think trust is really the only of those three words that mean anything anymore. Faith and and believing in something, these kind of things, what are people talking about when they say, keep the faith, you got to believe. I don't know what they're saying, but trust I understand. Trust, I can trust somebody. That means I think that what they say is reliable. I think I can count on their character. That's trust. That still has meaning for me. And that's what the word pistos, what the word translated faith means. Faith, belief, trust are all the same word in the Greek. The word used for hope here is not something that we wish for, something we want real bad. But it's something that we expect, something that we have reason to believe is going to happen. We anticipate it. We look forward to it. You see, I cannot hope in a biblical sense to win the lottery. I may want to, I may wish I did, but that is not a biblical hope. Unless I get a phone call from the commissioner and he says, hey, you've just won, the check's on its way. Then I have a biblical hope. I'm looking forward to it and I've got reason to look forward to it. I've got a reason to expect it. That then becomes a biblical hope. The term assurance. In assurance of things hoped for, or as the King James puts it, the substance of things hoped for. And that's a very difficult word. In fact, it's, it's virtually impossible to translate. Because it really doesn't refer to anything emotional, any confidence or anything like that. What it refers to, it's a philosophical term referring to the underlying realities. The real realities. See, the Greek philosophers were always trying to deduce their way to that which was real, that which was substantial, that which was concrete. Plato thought that the uh, things that we touch and feel were really mere reflections of the truly real, the, the, the ideal that is up somewhere in the heavenlies. Well, this is the same word that Paul uses, or that the, the, the writer of Hebrews uses. What he's trying to communicate is that faith is the ability to grasp, to hold on to, to understand the underlying realities. That which is truly real. That which is objectively there, regardless of how I feel about it. Not just what I want to be true, but what is in fact fundamentally true. 
and conviction of things not seen is the realization that the things that we cannot see, the things that we cannot touch, are the truly important things in life. Brian Fisher, in his notes on this passage for the growth group leaders, points out that love cannot be seen. It cannot be weighed. You can't hold it in your hand. But without love, all of the other things that we call uh, substantial, all the tangible things, uh, uh, careers and, and houses and cars and clothes, all of these things are meaningless and unsatisfying without the unseen things, without love, without courage, without relationship, without honesty, without integrity, without the kingdom of God, without the spiritual realities that we deal with. You see, what we're talking about here is realizing that the unseen realities are the fundamental, the basic realities, the things that we have to deal with. The term for conviction also means proving. Faith is the, the, the proving of this, the, the testing it out in real life. You see, by faith we say to God, okay, I believe what you have to say about these unseen realities, about the priorities in life. And so I'm going to try it. And we start allowing what God said about what's truly important to a satisfied life. We allow those to start to affect our priorities and our behavior. And we discover that, in fact, they really are true. We're dealing with reality. You see, God gave us five senses to explore and investigate the physical world. And He gave us one sense, faith, to explore the spiritual world. The spiritual things are ultimately lasting. The physical things are just temporary. Well, that's enough of a philosophy lesson. Let's get on to the, uh, the, the bones and the meat of this, to the examples that, that Paul uses, or that the writer of Hebrews uses. Okay, verse 2. For by it, that is by faith, the men of old gained approval. In verse 2, it says, the men of old gained approval. Literally, they received a good report. They all passed the test of life. They all got A's. Some of them graduated magna cum laude, others laude hakam. But they all passed. They all graduated. And they're given to us exa as examples so that we also can pass the tests of faith. One thing we're going to notice about these guys is that they were not generally regarded as, as successes by their peers, by their society, by their own age. In fact, they were viewed as failures often. There's no success doctrine taught here. But the judge has spoken. The God of the universe said, no, they are successes. Realize, faith can ruin your life. It can mess everything up in your job and in your relationships. Because again, we're not talking about a success doctrine, but if faith is holding on to what is true, what is really there, then God help us, we cannot embrace lies. Unfortunately, a lot of people embrace Christianity as if it were a lie. See, they don't really believe it's true. Or they've got this nagging suspicion that maybe it isn't. And so they never take the time, the energy, the effort to think it through, to work it through, to find out what really is true. See, this is dishonesty. 
And the fruit of dishonesty, the fruit of hypocrisy, is always evil. I guess that's another sermon. I better get back to our text. Well, the point of verse 3. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. The point that he's making is that the word of God was sufficient to call the, the physical universe into being. You see, the, 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 the earth that we're sitting on, the, the elements that make up this floor, this stage, or this podium, this body, the things that we call substantial, the things that we call real, and they, they're real, they're really here. But the Word of God is more fundamental, more primary, more substantial, more reliable, even though He is unseen, even though we can't touch Him and grab Him. And we have no time this morning to talk about evolution. It's an interesting topic. And I think there are many good reasons to question current theories on, on scientific grounds. But just remember that science has the latest word, not the last word. And the point that our writer is trying to make is that even though these things we consider substantial than the physical universe, even though it's really here, it wouldn't be if the Word of God had not been substantial, if God had not had the power and the ability to affect this. See, God's Word, God Himself pre-existed this physical universe, and this universe is contingent, is reliant on the reality of God's Word. I'm uncomfortable with saying that something is more real than something else. Uh, last Wednesday, Nicholas Ivins and I were uh, at a golf course, and there was this sign that said, Miller Beer, as real as it gets. And I was looking at that, I was thinking, as real, what does that mean, as real as it gets? Real is real. I mean, if something exists at all, it is real in some form. I... Um, you know, I, I think that, that the idea that something can be more real is really just a, a twist. What we're saying is that something is more important. Not that it's more real, because, see, that's a real chair. An idea is a real idea. Even if it's a real bad idea, it's a real idea. God is real. You see, these things are all real. But when you're looking for something in reality to depend on, Nothing that is real is more reliable than God and His Word. That's the point that we're looking at here. Well, our first real-life example of faith is Abel, Adam and Eve's second son. By faith, verse 4, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Okay. Abel offered a better sacrifice. Now, that doesn't mean the thing that he offered, God liked more. God does not prefer burgers to tofu. It wasn't what the sacrifice was itself. It was the way it was offered. See, Abel was offering to God out of a sincere desire to know God, to be with God. Abel was offering to God out of a heart 
that was dependent on God, that longed for God. He was offering to God with an understanding that God was the one who provided righteousness, that God is the one who made that offering acceptable, that God was the one that made he himself acceptable. You see, Cain was coming from the other direction. Cain was doing the necessary ritual, trying to get what he wanted out of God by doing the right thing, by doing the religious thing. So the first lesson that we get about faith is that faith starts with dependence on God, with His provision for us, rather than relying on our own efforts, even when those efforts are very religious, even when those efforts fit all the descriptions of how it should be. What God is looking at is the heart that longs for Him, the heart that seeks Him, the heart that depends on His resources, His provision, rather than our own. And notice again that, that His faith did not get Abel's success by this world standard. In fact, it got him dead. But he was a success. God says that he, his life counted. By faith, he still speaks to us. We still learn from Abel. Okay, verse 5 tells us about Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Back in Genesis the early part of Genesis, we read the story of Enoch. And it says that Enoch walked with God. Enoch's faith was there for the long haul. For 365 years, this guy walked with God. We don't see anything in the account that would indicate that anything dramatic or eventful ever happened in his life. He just walked with God in the middle of a, of a wicked and a corrupt society. And at the end, that walk just continued. The step between this world and the next. The step between time and eternity. The step between dealing with the things that are seen and dealing with the things that are unseen was a very short step for Enoch because he had spent his whole life walking with God. He had spent his whole life focused on the things that are unseen, realizing that those are the important things in life. Walking with God means that he involved God in every part of his life. No matter what he was doing, he was aware that God was there with him at work, in the home, when he was playing. God was always there and he was aware of that. He was able to turn to God in dependence for any situation in his life. Turn to God for the wisdom and the fortitude to deal with a confusing or a difficult situation. Turn to God to know how to love his wife with, with gentleness and understanding, how to discipline his children, how to do what was right regardless of the cost to himself. He could enjoy God. He could enjoy a beautiful fishing stream with God because God was there at every part of his life. You see, the, the, the faith of Enoch shows us that true faith is not a Sunday morning faith. It's not just a little piece of our life. It permeates everything. One thing, too, you'll notice about that faith for the long haul is not particularly emotional. Emotions and faith are both good things, but they are not the same thing. Faith is not an emotion. You may feel very close to God. You may feel connected. You may feel His power in your life. And that's wonderful. Enjoy it. Delight in it. But that isn't faith. And don't confuse that with faith. You see, Enoch's faith was there when he was up. It was there when he was down. It was there when he was in between. 365 years of it. 365 days a year. 
That's the same way our faith is to function. C.S. Lewis argues that faith is especially operative when there's no emotion pushing it on, making it easy. When all we have is the cold, unemotional apprehension of the facts, living out the truth that we know to be true in the mundane details of daily living. That's the kind of faith we're talking about. In verse 6, we have a brief aside pointing out what the fundamental truths that have to be grasped, the, 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 the essential starting point. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. The first thing you've got to do is deal with the logical imperative. God exists. You've got to work through that to really ask yourself, is that true? Is that real? And come to the point where you find that conclusion inescapable, that God does exist. And then second, you have to realize, you have to come to grips with, develop a confidence in the fact that God is a rewarder of those who seek Him, that He can be sought, that it's worthwhile spending your time and your energy, the focus of your life, singing God, or seeking God. You see, Jesus came to show us that that was what life is about. Jesus came to clear the way so we could do that. He died so that we can have a relationship with God. And He demonstrated that God is, is, is more anxious for that relationship than we are. It's God's greatest desire that we seek Him. And it's His intention to reward that sinking, singing, having trouble with that word, that seeking with revelation of Himself, with showing us just who He is. Okay, verse 7. Verse 7 introduces Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Now here's this guy Noah in the middle of this huge landlocked plain. I mean, the the nearest body of water is hundreds of miles away. And in a world that, according to Genesis 2, 5, had never experienced rain yet. You see, the the earth at that time was kind of like like Portland. It was covered by a dense cloud, a a water canopy over the whole earth. And, and, And mist would come out of this canopy. It would keep the temperature even and warm all over the earth. And the mist would come down, water the plants. Everything was lush and beautiful. But it had never rained. And here comes God up to this guy and says, I want you to get out, build a boat, because it's going to rain like crazy. Now, how ridiculous this guy must have looked to his friends and his family. He's making his family do all this work on this big boat when they could be out, out growing crops, uh, developing uh, a name for themselves, building cities, doing important stuff. And here they are building this stupid boat. Again, he looked like a fool. But what the Scripture says is that in fear, reverence is too weak a word, in fear he got on with building that ark. You see, God told him what was going to happen. And Noah believed it. Noah accepted it without any corroborating evidence at all. The fact that God said it was enough to convince him and enough to scare him down to his toenails and to get him out there building a boat and putting up with his complaining kids, building that boat. See, he didn't just say, God, yes, I believe you, and then go on with normal life. 
He said, God, I believe you. And it changed his life. It changed his priorities. It changed the focus of what he was doing. Again, you know, this guy must have looked, looked crazy. But he believed God. You know, if we really believe God, some of the things that he says to us will scare us profoundly. If there is a judgment, I've got people whom I love who I need to tell. I've got my own life to really honestly examine and to think through. Our passage says that Noah condemned the world by his actions. In Second Peter, Peter refers to Noah as a preacher of righteousness. Well, nowhere in the Genesis account do we see Noah going around yelling at people, condemning them, preaching at them. We don't see him saying much of anything. What happened was his building of the boat, his obedience of God was speaking loudly, was doing the preaching for him. He wasn't going around shouting things at people and then living a life that denied everything that he believed. He was listening to God. He was showing by his actions that he believed what God said. And the same thing is true for us. We need to tell people we love the truth, but it's our actions It's our actions that have to demonstrate the reality of God to people who are unwilling to take God and His plans, God's Word, into account. Again, uh, they mocked Noah. They considered him a fool. They thought he was nuts. They thought he was living in a dream world. And, And that was a reasonable conclusion because here he was out in the middle of nowhere building this boat, waiting for the rain. But we find in the end that he was dealing with reality, that he was not in a dream world. It was unfortunately those who could not grasp the unseen that were living in the dream world.